Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Full Stack Leader Podcast. This week, I'm excited to have my friend and colleague, Jennifer Lamote, who I've worked with on CPO level on a number of projects. She's an expert in e-commerce, and she's got an exciting new thing she's about to begin and announce soon. We're excited to have you here this week. Jennifer, welcome. Hey, Ryan. It's so great to be here and, and be able to talk about commerce and retail and my career and leadership. So thanks for having me. Yeah, amazing. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you got into the the industry and, and how your career path has led you to this time. Certainly. I started my career at EDS. And at the time, I was really looking at two career paths. My educational background was in accounting and information systems. And I had the choice to kind of go the pure accounting route or technology. It was the end of the first dot-com boom, and it was an exciting time in tech. And I was one of the few females at the time and, and had a great opportunity to go work for EDS. And it was an exciting time. There was Y2K happening, and everybody was worried about the massive legacy system shutdown. And so it was really a great time to be a female in tech and learning, but I yearned for a bit more challenge. And I had the opportunity to go work for a startup very early on. One of my cohorts in the engineering program at EDS reached out to me because he is working for a startup that was later acquired by CMGI. It was about that time that I dipped my toe in more emergent tech and definitely more emergent delivery practices. Talon was one of the early shops doing precursors to Agile and Scrum. And so we were extreme programming. We were looking working with a lot of startups at the time. And then there were companies like barnesandnoble.com that were really starting to dip their toe in the e-commerce market. Mm-hmm. And we were really entrenched in those companies and delivering kind of that first generation of, of dot-com systems. And so it was really at that time that I went to work for my first startup. And we were really helping all the early startups and people looking to go into the early dot-com and build their first commerce site direct-to-consumer build those sites. So we had customers like InCapital and delivered their first capability around uh, e-commerce and modern consumer banking. We had barnesandnoble.com that we were working with to roll out their early e-commerce and buy online systems. And then we were working with a company called Exchange Path, which was a very early competitor to PayPal. Following that and the dot-com crash was really the first time I jumped into more of the product side. So we had been working with these customers, delivering in this very kind of agile, extreme programming way. And I really found that my passion led at the intersection of the consumer experience, the business and the technology. And so I had the opportunity to go work for a startup that was in the supplier relationship management space. Back then to be in product, you needed to be much more technical in nature. And so this is really a, a heavy data-driven product in the uh, supplier relationship management space. 
they were trying to roll a product to market. And the big gap there is they had 10 customers and over $9 billion of GE's direct material supply chain flowing through their system. But wow. they actually hadn't built a product. They had branched their code base about 10 times. So it's <laughs> wow. kind of a very early lesson in B2B. And my task... Par- parallel, was, parallel code. Yeah, exactly. Parallel code, a lot of branching. And so my task was really to come in and look at that and help them develop a product that could scale and roll out to uh, the rest of their customers. So I spent the next couple of months working with customers and digging and reading code to figure out what had been built. <laughs> And then really <laughs> developing this very complex system that dealt with EDI, believe it or not. So you can imagine that mm-hmm. large manufacturers were dealing with something called rip and read EDI. So that meant the guys like Boeing and Caterpillar and John Deere and others were receiving printed faxes and other of what they needed their supply chains to deliver. They would riff it off and have these expedite meetings. That's why they called it Rip and Read EDI. And we were really at the forefront of consolidating all that information. And you can imagine as these supply chains were changing, there were things like the planning that was happening. And, you know, it was it was a very exciting time. I know it doesn't sound super sexy, but it was because we were doing things like just-in-time delivery and just-in-time manufacturing. And We were working with some of the early guys like Toyota on uh, what they called at the time milk runs, meaning we knew what the supply chains needed. We knew what the manufacturing process needed. And so we were taking product and staging it in distribution centers. The vendors themselves were holding this product in a vendor-managed inventory kind of way. And then it was really arriving on their manufacturing lines and floors to be able to produce that product just in time. Wow. And it it really highlights how much the evolution of this entire process has taken place over the course of time. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I think it's really interesting because supply chain now with AI is going through its own metamorphosis. Yep. And then when you start to look at other industries, just like retail, it was only recently that we really started to move into this dropship paradigm or this idea that vendors hold the inventory. Ultimately, it's kind of much more complex because you're dealing with finished product. A lot of these ideas came from those late 90s, early 2000s and came from manufacturing, right? Just like lean business models and lean UX, all that really came from the efficiencies that were gained by those companies really trying to think about how they delivered product to market in a more effective way. Yeah, I mean, even the, the entire Kanban system coming out of Toyota as a whole, right? So that there's an entire project management methodology built out of a supply chain methodology. And, it, and it, that always amazed me. Yeah, and I really, I think that's why I gravitated towards it. And I think it was a very tangible learning point for me in terms of as these new you know, agile and technology methodologies came came to market and we started to use them. I had a very early entry point to that, right? Not only extreme programming and really this idea of partner programming and teams working together to build better products, 
but also, you know, things like weekly builds and iterative development and getting real-time feedback from your customer away. In some cases, some of that is is just making it into industry or has in the past five years. But for me, that's something I experienced in the early 2000s and I experienced it not only in the technology way, but in an analogous way in manufacturing. So I think that was this really instrumental point in my career where not only was I really learning what it meant to build products and products that scale and can make money, i.e. the branch code. We often learn from from other people's mistakes and from our own as well, but we learn more from seeing things done wrong sometimes than we do seeing it done right. But then I had this very early exposure to these technologies and methodologies around just-in-time and efficiency. And it's really all those experiences that start to culminate in, you know, how I think about retail and how I think about technology and how I think about product. And how did did that evolve after you kind of came out of those early legacy startup technology companies? What, What happened after that for you? Yeah. So from there, I went to work for another startup. It was really one of the investors that at the time, Connecticut Innovations that connected me with Dr. Alex Schusler, and he had a startup coming out of NYU. It was in the original equipment manufacturing space, and really what it was an early marketplace to drive network effects between the heavy equipment rental companies. So think of the time of the nation's rent and the United Rentals, right? Like when you drive down the street and you see somebody with that lift equipment or the tractors and other things. And then the OEM manufacturers themselves. And it was really focused around equipment lifecycle management. And we had a lot of technologies that kind of mimicked early IoT. So the whole concept was as this complex piece of equipment rolled off the manufacturing line, it had this very intricate series of pieces and parts that pulled it together. And And honestly, it was a very complex data structure. So you might have John Deere who's assembling and the motors are coming from Honda and the widget is coming from some small mom and pop. But to take care of that piece of equipment, you have to know all those things. You have to know things like which parts are up for safety and warranty recall. Based on the mileage, how long do those parts work based on the usage? And so there was a really interesting problem happening at the time where As you start to to look at that complex kind of manufacturing chain and the piece of equipment and its afterlife and the aftermarket, how do you even care and feed for that? And so really, we were instrumental in that. So we accumulated all that information. So we went to Honda and we got their motor information and we went to small mom and pop and got their widgets. And so we knew everything about every piece of equipment in their fleet down to, you know, what bolt was on its tire, we knew its entire rental history and where it was in the market. And when the equipment came in and checked in from being rented out, we knew everything that needed to happen to that piece of equipment. We also kind of managed that equipment when it was in the field. So if it was in the field and it had a safety recall, then we were really stepping into that gap and helping both the manufacturer and the rental company and saying, Hey, this piece of equipment isn't safe and we need to trade it out. And so how much how much how much R and D does it take to create something like that? Because it really is a, a pretty wide array of variables that exist within it. 
did you guys spend a lot of time just iterating or did you have a lot of perspective going in? Yeah, we worked with this very, Ronnie Peters was his name and he was really great at design. He came out of Apple and, you know, I was very fortunate to work with someone that talent kind of at that point in my career, very early in my career. And we really went in and spent a lot of time doing customer discovery. We put ourselves in the shops and we figured out what was going on and we went into the manufacturer, but we also leveraged a lot of Dr. Schusler's knowledge at the time. He Mm -hmm. spent about two years consulting in that space and knew a lot about it. And one of the big challenges these renal companies faced was equipment utilization and tool time. And so that sounds really buzzwordy. But if you think of these mechanics as kind of the rock star of that industry, and you think about the economics of that equipment, one of the really interesting things is once you've bought that equipment, which has a, a decent cost, mm-hmm. uh, it's life. It's actually longer than its depreciation life, right? And mm-hmm. so once it's yep. sitting on your lot, then if it's not being rented out, then you're losing in the thousands of day for each piece of equipment, right? Wow. And so really for us, our initial objective was really to increase the equipment's utilization. And we use that as an early KPI and benchmark around really optimizing the process. There was a little bit of iteration and and kind of learning around that. For example, we learned things like, oh gosh, we had the background screen as white. And once we went into the rooms where they were repairing the equipment and you have shop lights, the white doesn't play, right? You're glaring the mechanics in the eyes. But we also learned some really interesting things about the fact that at the time, all this information about a piece of equipment was rolling out in a manual way. And so what that really meant to the manufacturers is they were getting all these misorders and misfires. And that every year the rental company and the OEM would come to the table And there would be these very contentious kind of negotiations around the price of equipment and what things look like. And there were really big pain points on both sides of that market. And so the fascinating thing is once we got in and started to understand how this information flowed, we started to see that, you know, if Honda changes its numbers or if this tractor starts to use a different motor, then the material might not reach the the rental company until six to nine months out, right? And so you can imagine over that timeline, not only the misfires on the parts, but equipment was sitting on the lot that could be redeployed because maybe there was a broken, right? And so MVP was really around making the information available and then providing the ability to quickly order the part. And then the money at the time w- was made off the transaction on each and every deal. And you can imagine today, we're s- they're sitting on a wealth of information. This was 2003 to five. And so you can imagine the type of information they're sitting on in terms of data and how effective certain parts are and how those parts have worked over time from kind of motors to wheels to all these things. So that was a super exciting time. And I still consider Dr. Schusler a great mentor of mine. I learned so much from him. He was one of the very early behavioral economists, which at the time they didn't even 
it was very Keynesian economics and, and mm-hmm. they weren't really considering kind of consumer behavior that could be somewhat erratic and how that kind of played into all of that. So that was probably one of my favorite product jobs to this day. I was one of their early key hires and then grew out their product and go-to-market team uh, and took them from about zero to seven million in ARR. So Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. So then from there, I actually launched my own direct-to-consumer company. I think the premise for me has always been a learning mentality. And I always loved consumer behavior and, and wanted to dip my toe in the water there. So that was really my my first shift as a product person in terms of direct-to-consumer. Prior to that, as an engineer, we had definitely developed these early direct-to-consumer sites. And we, we, it was before the time of really heavy UX. I mean, we certainly yeah. had UI designers and that sort of thing, but we weren't thinking about consumer behavior. So this We're was through a lot of a lot of like pre-built commerce engines that exist now, and we kind of take it for granted because we have them at our capabilities or like at our fingertips. But back then, I think you were probably in at that early stage in direct to consumer, really inventing a lot of things, I assume. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, that all, you know, the information as a service, the platforms as a service, the accelerators as a service, none of that really existed. We were building everything from the ground up and, and in some ways, you know, sometimes it was easier and sometimes it was certainly slower, right? I mean, anytime you start to put all this third-party software together, it, sometimes it doesn't mesh and there's learnings there. But I think there's value in having to build things from scratch and, and the type of background that gives you and the type of technologist that creates, right? Yep, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So at that time, I started my own company called Milk and Cookies. It was really honestly a side hustle. My husband and I had always dreamed about having a little coffee shop in the West Village. And we originally just said, hey, we're going to launch this cookie shop. It was the cupcake craze of New York and Magnolia Bakery wow. and, yeah. <laughs> and all those Amazing. things. That, and, you know, they're very, very, very similar to the manufacturing and industry, but totally different. (laughs) (laughs) Completely unparalleled. I mean, you're talking about jumping off a cliff. I'm going to make some cookies. How about that? (laughs) And, and still, and still very much have to be user-centric and get feedback and, you know, make adjustments. It was a lesson and it was a really great lesson. So I had gone from EDS where, you know, funding isn't a question to Talon during the kind of first dot-com where people were throwing money at you to these two very cash-strapped startups where you have these very lean teams trying to do exceptional things and then talk about bootstrapped and no cash, try starting your own direct-to-consumer business. So we launched this little bait shop in the West Village. It was a very early lesson, ironic lesson at the time. I don't know if you ever remember Daily Candy. Do you remember them? I do remember. Yeah, the the email newsletter. Yeah, they were great. And so we started this little cookie shop because at the the time, you know, in the West Village, there are plenty of Italian bakeries and then there were cupcakes and but nobody was really doing simple Americana. So we developed this concept that's called Milk and Cookies Bakery. Super unique. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sounds amazing. Um, I, and it was really focused around Americana, fresh organic ingredients, and, you know, hearkening back to just in time and manufacturing, I, the food business, it can be very challenging in terms of margin. And so I was really trying to think of a way to prevent the wastage. And so we came up with this idea that people could come in and kind of construct their own cookies. And so they could come in and choose from a number of base doughs. Now these doughs could be made in advance. They could be frozen. They could be kept fresh. And then you can choose from over 100 different ingredients. And because cookies could be baked in near real time, 8 to 10 minutes, uh, maybe even shorter in a commercial oven, we were allowing people to kind of call in orders. We had the website that my husband and I built <laughs> and they could place their orders online. And then we were doing delivery kind of in those early days. Uh, How were you receiving those orders if they were placed online at the time? It, they were just going into a database and then yeah. we had the orders that we could kind of pull up on our POS systems and it was integrated. The beauty was my husband and I were both technologists, right? And yeah, that's right. It, it was hard. The POS systems were super limited. There, you know, was no square. Yeah. You know, there's some challenges even with those types of tech. But yes, as a technologist, we were we were well suited to do some of this. <laughs> and so we were able to kind of put our own systems and processes in place that helped drive some efficiency around that and, and allowed us to kind of give consumers what they wanted. So here we are in the West Village doing delivery and Christmas rolls around. And at the time, I had gotten connected to some folks over at W Hotels and they wanted to do gift baskets. So here I am, Christmas time, 500 square feet in the West Village and W Hotels wants to order 10,000 gift baskets for me. Can you imagine? <laughs> it's a classic leadership moment right here. <laughs> this is a classic leadership and entrepreneur moment. Yes. And so <laughs> I nodded my head and said, absolutely. Ironically, I was pregnant at the time with my daughter. And so that had a set of challenges of its own. And then I signed the contract and then I proceeded to figure out how I was going to deliver 10,000 gift baskets out of 500 square feet in the West Village. <laughs> and I you know this particular version of it for you was in this kind of baking environment, but it is a very true scenario that happens so often. It's like we automatically hit scale. I like we're kind of building towards it, thinking it's going to come, things come and then scale. And I imagine that was a great lesson in how to work with that. There are a couple of great lessons there. One is here is great in your friend. And I think in the world of social media, we've kind of drifted away from that a little bit. But, you know, just yeah. The consumer in general trusts that. And as the cost of, this is an aside, but as the cost of digital advertising has gone up and all these things, kind of this return to nostalgia. I think the second thing is my experience in scale was really around process and technology. And I'll tell you, process and technology are a heck of a lot easier to scale <laughs> than a physical business, right? Yeah, yep. Uh, and then the third thing is going back to the PR point is Daily Candy did a very early release for us. They stopped by. We were very fortunate. They wrote an article on us. And at lunchtime, the day it was released, over 600 people showed up at the bakery and were wrapped around the corner. Did you have any idea that you would have that kind of response? 
I I had zero idea. And it obviously it was overwhelming launching this thing. And remember, this was just a passion project. This was like, yeah, this is, okay. Yeah. I had been in technology. I'd been working really hard. I We started this as a passion project on the side, but it really kind of hastened my exit from technology because now we had this company that you know, had grown ahead of its own, right? <laughs> and these are obviously first world problems. It was an exciting time, but it was also extremely overwhelming. So here I am, pregnant, very sick, right before Christmas, driving upstate to find a co-packer to help me create 10,000 gift baskets in under 30 days. And that was certainly uh, a learning curve for me, even thinking about how do you scale recipes to be able to create that mm-hmm. many cookies? And or then, or pack- packaging fulfillment, things like that. Yeah. A hundred percent. And so then, so then we really leveraged. Well, I think there was kind of an aha moment. So we were, so we had a lot of great press. I was on the Today Show and Good Morning America and Roker on the Road. And, it, you know, it was certainly an exciting and a fun time. And then I, you know, then you anchor around, well, now it's the holidays and it's a little bit dead. I should tell you, we kind of made it through the holidays with the the subway strike. Do you remember when that happened and the kind of the subways were shut down and all of that in in New York? Maybe not because you were out in L.A., but, uh, you know, even simple things like doing delivery. My delivery guys couldn't get on the subway. There were a few bumps and breezes, but all the things we kind of experience as entrepreneurs. And it was really at that point, we hit the post-holiday lull. We, my husband and I went to LA and kind of took a two or three week break. And I came back and started to think about, well, certainly Valentine's coming up. But as each of these spikes in press hit, as a food business, it's very exciting. And you got these big blips on your radar But then you're in New York and it's highly, highly competitive and very few businesses make it through the first two, you know, first year or two. And so you start. Especially in, especially in that city where there's so much competition. A hundred percent. And you start to think about, well, gosh, how am I going to scale this and keep this alive? And then it was really at that point that we started to look at kind of two different lines of business. One was wholesale. So we had a partnership with with W Hotels, and we were doing Amandy cookies in their locations across the U.S. Uh, we started to work with some other corporates, and we were doing uh, delivery for them, like J. Crew would call in orders to us, and AIG, and so we we had a line of business going there. And then we started to do a ton in, in parties and entertainment and you know, weddings and and that sort of thing. So that's really yeah. how we were able to scale that business. Where and where did that lead you? So you come out of that, and how do you come back to to tech itself? Yeah. So it you know it certainly was a fun time, and but at the time, you know, funding a food business it was not something like now. There's all this excitement, or there was you know there is around CPG and retail and fashion brands and all those things. Right. Yep. But getting that type of funding back then was really hard. And again, this was just supposed to be a passion project. So we got through the holidays. It was about two years in, and we had really scaled the business and built out those lines of business. But ultimately. I miss my day job. I miss launching products and I miss technology. And so 
we were fortuitous at the time. My my husband had an opportunity to go to San Francisco and work for a startup. And at the same time, we were approached by a restaurant family in New York who owned a number of businesses. And they offered us a bit of a sweetheart deal. And we stepped out and we took off to San Francisco. New chapter. New chapter. <laughs> and And so what, when you come back around to kind of this evolutionary period and the time that you had exited the kind of formal tech industry, although it sounds like you were on the ground learning a bunch of things. What did you come back with? Yeah. So we were in San Francisco at the time. And, you know, again, I had gone from kind of large, big high tech to fast paced dot com tech and start the startup world, product in the startup world, launching my own business. And At the time, I had my daughter and I felt like I needed some flexibility. And my husband was also working for a tech company at the time. And I really decided to then start to dip my toe in the water with consulting. And so that was really my first foray into uh, large companies and industry. So I had always been on the outside looking in. And it was really at that time that I started to consult with a healthcare company. And that in itself had learnings for me that I I think has really helped evolve my career and evolve my thinking and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So at that point, I was working for a healthcare company in San Francisco. And, you know, they, I think... This was kind of my first lesson in in culture fit (laughs) because my personality certainly was entrepreneur and it fit startups felt like a glove. And here I was kind of with this wealth of experience jumping into a company and, you know, it was a stark contrast. It was a stark contrast in how they thought about product and Mm -hmm. which frankly, they didn't, right? It was when you started to look at these companies, it was that whole project versus product culture. Here I was used to like developing strategies and launching software. And now, you know, I'm helping a company in healthcare and they're doing basic things like, gosh, how do we launch software that supports our B2B clients and onboards them? And simple things I took for granted, like, integrations and APIs and all these things that I had been working on or small agile teams or teams and agile methodologies really. And it slowed, it slowed right down, right? <laughs> it, it slowed to a screeching halt. <laughs> yeah. I think this is an interesting point too, because the, the area that you're talking about project versus product and the way that maybe legacy enterprise companies look at it versus startups it was where the space was left disruption by the startups and people like you who were getting in there and going, oh, okay, how can we fill this hole in a, some kind of a, a business that deals in, in manufacturing or parts and things like that, uh, all the way to really like companies com- that aren't thinking about their customers on the user experience level quite yet at this phase and startup after startup went after that. A hundred percent. And really the startup culture is around results and it, and taking risks and having outcomes. And when you start to get into these larger companies, 
you start to see that rightly by Wall Street and other, they're held to a different measure, right? I mean, even if you look yeah. at what happened with Amazon versus what happened with sort of traditional retailers, right? Retail retailers are expected to make returns quarter over quarter. Amazon very early on was given a lot of grade, right? And frankly, they're not really a retail company. They're a tech company and they're both. So they, they had this great opportunity, but how do these companies really think about technology and what's the risk their executives can take? And, you know, more importantly, well, and, and, yeah, and, and like really on that the same topic is really as who's already entrenched in the business. And I think that you bring up bookstores. It's a great example of what Amazon really early was. Most of the kind of traditional brick and mortar bookstores had to take a defensive position to protect their foot traffic. It was the most important thing. And Amazon was able to come in a much more un totally unique way to, to really gather customers in the digital space, which people didn't value at the time. And they were just actively making sure that those were taken care of. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I studied a lot of history in school, and I think that that really plays into how I think about the world and how I would think about strategies and other things. But, you know, those who fail to study history are doomed to repeat it. And I'll tell you, I was consulting what was part of the work I was doing with some of the largest retailers in the U.S. in 2010 to 12. And one of the fascinating things is they didn't view Amazon as their competitor at the time, right? I mean, they, yeah. they really didn't. That's, that is that is within the last decade thing that I think it really, everyone, the scope of what Amazon is doing. And then some of those power, really powerful tool sets that they had developed on the technology side or on the fulfillment side, they, once they kicked in, it, it, everyone became the impact. A thousand percent. And that's really been fascinating for me. So when I jumped in consulting, I really started in healthcare. So I'd done a number of industries. I did some work in finance with some large credit card companies, but really my passion kind of anchoring and having my own retail business was really on the retail side. And so I yeah. really started to hyper-focus there. And obviously, you know, that's how you and I met. You know, re retail is very exciting, but when you think about focusing on this Amazon thing a little more and what happened, when you think about these traditional retailers, they were in a position of power. And, and you know, this is really important when thinking about innovation and thinking about innovation applies to different things. Like a startup's job is to innovate, right? But once you reach a certain capacity as a brand, then the old adage was really to protect the brand. And so you start to suppress innovation to protect market share. And then really what we've seen with this drastic shift in consumer expectations and startups kind of leading the market and shifting and changing the customer expectation is everybody else was forced to come along for the ride. And so that was really leading to these large kind of Fortune 500 retailers being in the space where, you know, they launched e-commerce as an incubator and innovation idea, but it was a little bit like separation of church and state, right? Where the brick and mortar didn't talk to the e-commerce. And so how do you really even think about that unified commerce experience? And, you know, I was at the time working 
with an executive over at Macy's, Mike Tobin. And, you know, I, I think he was a really early strategic leader in kind of bricks versus clicks and thinking about stores as a fulfillment center. And we, we got to work on some super exciting projects, putting digital mm-hmm. on store. And, you know, there, there were a number of challenges when you think about these companies on a tech first company. First of all, like how they approach product teams. So there was a, a big shift from taking these traditional BAs and project teams and then trying to hire and shift them to a product team. And then there were struggles with comm versus stores. And there were struggles with even data infrastructure and the scale of data, right? So, yeah. And I think yeah. I think that actually is highlighting like some of the, the kind of key elements that made Amazon so is that they solved a lot of the foundational commerce elements that had to be solved. And they thought about it from a technology and a unification point of view. But a lot of the fragmentation happening, even with like really large retailers over the last decade, it it meant that a lot of the basic tool sets to create commerce or to create the fulfillment, they they didn't really get matured to market until pretty recently. Yeah, and I still think some of them are maturing. And again, a lot of that is coming from startup and pushing in. But I I think there's one other really important aspect that, you know, as a tech leader and as a product leader, it comes top of mind. And that is Amazon didn't have to deal with legacy technology. It was very easy to say, I'm going to launch this. And and I don't mean easy. I don't mean that flippant. (laughs) Amazon's easy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I hear you. But they, they, they weren't refactoring an entire system in order to create a technology that could support it. It was new. They were creating a new system. They were creating a new system and a new company, and they yeah. were building it from scratch, and they were highly funded, and they were given the graciousness of not being obligated to Wall Street and quarter-over-quarter return, right? Mm. Yeah, early and. On. Early on, I mean, obviously that had shifted now, but they're also a tech company and and that was a very smart strategy, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think with a lot of these retailers, as they started to morph, they were laden down with this legacy technology and how do you get that data out of your legacy systems? And frankly, a lot of them just didn't have the infrastructure of the teams that had built something from the ground up. A lot of that lived in startups. So how do you take teams who have managed pieces of technology and shift them to this innovation space and kind of creating new business models and creating new tech stacks and that sort of thing? So Well, and educating business owners who may not even care about tech at that time too. So you have to educate them, have them understand this future wave is coming and they either have to think level of disrupt or they're not going to be able to keep up, but they don't know that at the time. This is, this has just become clear in the last decade, but maybe in the last five to to seven years for a lot of these companies. A hundred percent. And that, and so I was really kind of at the forefront of that and it wasn't glamorous. It was almost like a startup again, but I consulted with this innovation team that kind of sat in the core and we were doing things like buy online and pick up in store and how do we enable associates. But it goes back to the crux. And this is where I really leaned on my technology background. There were things like 
how do you get networks and store to work when you've got two T1s running into them and you've got people walking into them with mobile devices, right? How do you make APIs and services work when they're networked and orchestrating stored procedures on the mainframe to build MVP? And how do you start shifting out of that? And so really, I, I cut my teeth in that world and, and then worked with a lot of startups in the space that were trying to approach these retailers. And I, I think that's where my experience really came in because I had a ton of experience in the B2B space and really thinking about how you approach manufacturers. So the other thing I was really focused on is helping startups and really helping startups uh, realize how their technology could apply to these large retailers and helping them approach the market. And this is where I talk a lot about the great divide between innovation and industry. So, you know, I really started my product career there and trying to sell into these large manufacturers and really trying to get them to understand how this technology could apply to them and help them. And here I had come full circle, right? I had gone from high-tech technology to B2B to launching my own direct-to-consumer to really helping these retailers in their modern kind of unified commerce strategies. And now I start working with startups and how they approach these retailers and think about the go-to-market. And this, for me, was you know, a moment. It was a moment to realize that there really was such a huge gap, like that gap between innovation and technology and the industry really had become exponential. And so one of the things I saw a lot is tech companies showing up and selling their tech, but it was a bit like the telephone game or a translation game, right? So they're showing up and they're talking about APIs and speeds and all these things. And, you know, it was like one speaking English and one speaking French. Mm-hmm. And I really started to step into that void. And I would say with things like AI and machine learning um, and other things, that that gap just keeps growing and growing. So the ability for industry to absorb those innovations, I think, keeps getting wider. Yeah, and I think this is one of the interesting parts about your career and and why I want to talk to you is that leadership, it comes in lots of different forms, but one of the forms is actually leading the per, leading the evolution of an entire industry and being there in in you know the very early stages and watching it evolve over the course of time, but like being able to guide people and open things up for a big audience. That's one of the things I, I've appreciated about the work you've done. Yeah, 100%. And honestly, that's been a learning curve. So so one of the big things is like, how do you lead innovation teams when they're in a structure that half is traditionally waterfall, half's learning agile, or they're moving in a fragile manner? Yeah, and it doesn't facilitate innovation. It it certainly doesn't facilitate innovation, and it certainly highlights uh, culture fit. And, you know, really hiring the types of teams that can disrupt becomes very challenging, right? In that space, because people that want to innovate are, are really at the startups and they're changing things. But people that need to disrupt need that skill and they have to have cycles and they have to have experience. It, 
you know, they can't just be dipping their toe in the water or they can't just have developed features. Like we're talking about building something from the ground up, discovering business models, figuring things out. And, you know, you and I have talked a lot about this, but this is where it's not just the what, it's the how, right? And it's the type of leadership you bring to the game that really shows yeah. up here. So a lot of my job, I love to deliver products and I love innovation and I love pleasing the consumer, but I, I've really developed um, and honed my skills over the past 10 to 12 years in helping people that don't understand technology understand it and coaching people and bringing them along for the ride and using all those experiences from my early career and how do you do Agile? And certainly there were some frustration and friction points for me where I had to learn really valuable skills in terms of listening, because, you know, I, as a tendency can be when you're an entrepreneur and an innovator, you like to deliver to goals and results. But the reality yeah. is, is you have to follow the lead in these organizations and you can't come in like a bull in a china shop and kind of disrupt them. You have to take them along for the ride and there's some patience that develops from that, but I think it's also, you know, really valuable as a leader and really valuable as an entrepreneur to have that experience. And I was going to say, and then I think that's kind of led me full circle to where I am today, which is really an amplification of that. I know you and I have, have talked about this new venture I'm working on and really what we're really focused on is in this day and age of the Amazon world, how do we help these small and medium businesses compete? And so when you really think about the dynamic shift in digital, kind of going back to my milk and cookie days, right? Where I would be able to build my own tech, but most uh, small and medium business owners can't. And certainly there's platforms out there, but I think you've worked on them. I've worked on them. They're not Absolutely. the easiest in the world, especially yep. when you don't understand these things. And yep. what's really been interesting for me. So how do I take those opportunities and start to support this class of businesses that really is where my heart is and where, I don't know if you know this, but small and medium businesses produce almost 50% of our GDP and they represent about 99% of businesses in America. Yeah, I did actually know that. Yeah. yeah, and they're, you know, they're really being outdanced. So when you think about search, Amazon and Google own the top of the funnel. And then when you think about social, it's really, I mean, certainly it's emerging over time, but, but Facebook is gobbling up all these, these social platforms. So they really own that. When you think about kind of CPG brands and others and, and these local makers getting their products in store, like, the Walmarts and the Targets of the world, as well as the large CPG brands really own that. So in this new world of the digital age, where you know really only about 25% of these small and medium businesses have effective comm strategies and, and kind of modern web 3.0 moving into 4.0, probably less, how do you start to help them compete? And we're going to be launching soon with this new capability around that and really kind of helping up-level those brands with everything that I've learned from owning my own small business to tech to 
you know, what I experienced in big retail. Is going to come back in a big way. <laughs> it, it's definitely going to come back in a big way. And it definitely provides the right level of empathy to be able to kind of yeah, work absolutely. with these businesses. And, you know, some of these local businesses are, are super powerful and they're doing great business, but they're starting to see dwindling sales and COVID certainly hurt them. But they're small and mighty and they really are open to change in a different way. The enemy is outside the door and they're looking for change and they're looking for help. And so that's really kind of the next stepping off point in my career coming back full circle. So that was a lot. That's amazing. No, that's amazing. And I really do see how it all comes back around in kind of a big circular motion. But like at the same time, these themes are running through your career, running through your life. And it really is great to see how your leadership through a lot of these industry changes over the course of the last 20 years has led you to a spot where, guess what? You get to disrupt again and have some some impact in that world. And that's amazing. It was amazing to hear about Jennifer's journey through the world of digital commerce. She has the very unique perspective of being a part of this burgeoning platform development since the very early days. One of the key leadership take-homes I gathered from her was the importance of experiencing the challenges you are crafting software for firsthand. Her journey from technology to brick and mortar and back to technology offered her the unique capability of putting herself in the end user's shoes. This small nuance is not only helpful when thinking about the engineering of a solution, but invaluable to helping create a true evolutionary step in the challenges of that particular segment. Yeah, absolutely. So we're excited. So I'll keep you posted. Keep us posted. In the meantime, let's jump into your top five tips. This was a really great lead into those. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you think leaders should have and how leaders might be able to guide through some of the stuff that we've been talking about. Absolutely. If you're up for it, let's go to number one. Okay. Number one is always be learning. And that means a few things to me. One, just with this entrepreneurial mindset. I mean, as an entrepreneur, you're always learning. You're always refining your business models. You're always thinking about things a different way. But I think kind of core to a technology and product career, it sounds very cliched, but We've talked a lot about my career and and how it interweaves and the differences between smartups versus big companies and the learning curve. So I think it's important to kind of keep fresh, keep up with technology and really educate yourself. Seek those experts if it's something new. Be honest with yourself and understand where you're strong and where you're weak. Because I, I think that's going to be instrumental to where we go next, right? With the rapid pace yeah. of change and the rapid pace of the consumer. If you're not growing and learning, then you're standing still and you'll get left behind. Yep, that makes sense. All right, thank you. How about number two? Uh, number two is to listen carefully and not just listen to words, but listen to actions. And I alluded to a little bit of this in my story as I went from a startup and I jumped into industry and I came in a little bit like a raging bull and kind of had to tame myself. And I wanted to move fast and I wanted to innovate and I wanted things to happen and all that. And, you know, it it was really interesting to me how, you know, sometimes people didn't tell me no, they told me yes. Yeah, yeah. But they took no action, right? 
<laughs> and it, it was really interesting, the, the dichotomy between startups and enterprises. And so that's where I've had to really hone my spidey senses around that. And, you know, when people say yes, or the slow no from investors, you see a lot. So it's like, keep your eyes open, listen carefully, watch people's actions. And frankly, that goes to teams too, right? As we start to move uh, or have been moving for some time in this global world, like cultures are different and that sort of thing. And then I think finally, when it comes to leading product and tech teams, it's really critical to listen to them and let them know that you're there for them and you're a sounding board because, you know, whether they're innovating in a large company or they're out changing an industry, it's frustrating. And sometimes people just want to be heard. And, you know, sometimes that's perceived as some level of weakness, but as a leader, you have to be empathic and you have to be there and you have to have your teams back. And, you know, when when they feel like you have their back, then they'll go above and beyond for you. That's completely true. I've experienced the same thing over the course of time. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. How about number three? Tip number three. So number three is, it's a little cliched, right? So we all say, hire really strong teams and empower them and give them objectives and, you know, all, all those. All oh, that they do the basics, right? Like the, the foundations. The the basics and the foundations. But, you know, this is where I want to loop back to kind of culture fit is key, right? So as I thought about hiring these teams in a startup, what I might be looking for in a startup is very different than what I might be hiring into an uh, industry company or a not-for-profit. And it's really around understanding the tolerance for change and so you could have the smartest team in the world. And I certainly have teams on Rolodex that I could pick up the phone and call. But it's, there's also a component that says for everybody's mental health, there's, got, there's kind of got to be a good fit there. But the second is really giving them ground cover and making them focus. And, you know, I want to pause there for a minute and, and just give a little more insight there. Okay. So... One of the things I, I think in the startup culture, we all understand innovation and agile and design sprints and all those things. We take all those things for granted, right? But I talked a little bit about moving into industry and then, you know, even some of my experience working with the small and medium businesses. And we take these things like sometimes technology is just delayed or sometimes things come up and you have to pivot and it's a learning curve and nothing's perfect. But I think people's tolerance for that looks very different. And so it's not just about hiring the right team and getting the fit right. It's really about as a leader, it's your job to kind of clear the way and be the educator and shielding them so that teams can focus. And you've worked with technology teams a long time. And one of the things I've really learned about technology teams, being a technologist myself, is we like to focus, right? And there's, there's, if you're yanking them from one exercise to another, and I think you've probably seen this where people are like, well, we're doing Kanban, but what does that really mean? Like, leave this on the side. I know you only finished 10%. Now we're over here today and now we're over here tomorrow. 
And it really creates this culture where people can't deliver and they can't deliver outcomes. And that's where I see kind of these teams break down. So strong yeah. teams set them up for success and shield them so they can focus and be cognizant if you're in the learning mode of what it means to build these product and technology teams, educate yourself and make sure you're being aware of what you're doing to these teams because you can really kind of demoralize them if they're not given the right support. Yeah, that's a thing. It's a, the concept of shielding for attention, like let allowing the attention to, to exist and to thrive is actually what leads to innovation. That's an interesting concept because it's often overlooked as a leader where you kind of like, oh, I'm going to be the one to come up with it or I'm going to be the one, but like actually just facilitating that shielding for the attention and, and your whole team is allowed to create and, and have something beautiful arise from it. Absolutely. And I would say above anything else, that's the most critical, especially, especially when you're in enterprises, but I've certainly seen it in startups too, where teams get penalized yeah. and can't deliver. Yep. Yep. All right. How about number four? What do you got? Uh, so building products and strategy is not about a project or a process. It's the journey, right? And so I think I talked about this a lot. I mean, again, going yeah. back to startups, yeah. we know what product teams look like. But when you jump into these large innovation teams, we often launch projects over products. And, and products have a life cycle. They're born, they grow up, sometimes they don't make it, and then sometimes they go through their full life cycle and they have to be sunset. And so really thinking about building products, starting from the strategy and not thinking about as a one-time delivery and understanding that it's an iterative process, you're listening to the market. And this is where people get really uncomfortable with Agile, right? And so I think you and I have both seen it. You see it in larger companies better, or it's more amplified in larger companies where it's, okay, you need to lay out strategy. Okay, I laid out a strategy. I think it's a really good assumption, but the market might tell me five other things. And then somebody wants you to estimate it and somebody wants you to design it. And they want to know how much it's going to cost and how much it's going to return. And then, you know, the team gets paralyzed and paralysis analysis. It really is about state your hypothesis, test it in the minimum, pro you know, viable way. Is it a questionnaire to your customers? Is it a landing page? I mean, this goes back to Zappos and... and yeah, really you know, early, early testing methodology. Exactly. Exactly. Those methodologies. And then I think the other thing is this accuracy versus kind of precision mindset. Like when teams get formed, they don't know that. And, and discovering every single detail that's going to come out in a product launch, you know, you're probably not going to guess them all. You can certainly hire experienced teams, but assuming that you're going to be both accurate and precise following these methodologies, you know, ultimately agile ends up being cheaper and better because it's an evolution and you can make decisions in real time. And, and well, that's yeah, a really I, important piece. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, I think just as a concept, I know we deal with this on a constant basis, but the idea that you're talking about a product being a life cycle and having an actual life, right? There is an organic quality to all of it. And the second you remove that organic quality, 
it does limit where it can go. Sometimes it works. Sometimes the imagination is able to get it on paper. You build that exact thing and it happens. And, and then I think the biggest point is like a lot of the magic actually happens as you're getting into it and discovering and, ha- and engaging in, with that organic process. And some of the magic happens post-launch, right? Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Ab- feedback ab- in the ab- feedback. A hundred percent. And so really thinking about teams and engaging teams and thinking about these products more as funding gates in these larger companies, right? Not thinking about funding them as a project and then launching it and leaving it, but as funding gates, just like a startup and feeding it into a pipeline and letting the team achieve the outcomes and results. So, yep. Amazing. Awesome. Okay. And the last one, tip number five, what do you got? Tip number five is uh, tech is not the answer to new business strategy. <laughs> you know, I, I I'm love sure that. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think you and I had had a consulting gig where this very much uh, kind of came up um, and was at the forefront. But, you know, I often see this, especially consulting and CPG and retail. I met with a company a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, it really does require taking a step back and saying, as a company, what are my growth goals and how can I achieve that? And really thinking about it from a top-down approach. And so I often have a number of conversations that start with, oh, hey, there's this really cool geospatial intelligence. (laughs) And I'm like, yes, geospatial intelligence is amazing. What business problem is it going to solve? Or kind of at a more rudimentary level, meeting with CVG and retail brands that say, hey, I'm going to double my revenue by launching a new web and mobile stack. And it, okay, but do you need to launch a new stack yet? Or can you be discovering along the way and then validate that, right? Like My favorite, were- my favorite version of this right now is AI. We need to get AI. And, and <laughs> okay, okay that's, a, that's a big topic. Like, what do you want to do with it? <laughs> yeah, it, it's my favorite too. And that was kind of a way I was alluding to geospatial intelligence and other things. I need to get myself some AI. Yeah, well, web business. I mean, AI can solve a lot of problems, right? It can solve your supply chain. It can solve recommendations. It can solve all these things. So what do you really think you need to automize and optimize? And then what's the outcome going to be? Or what's your hypothesis around that outcome? Yeah. So. I I think we struggle in the Amazon world and everybody thinks tech is the answer and tech is is simply an enabler and it's amazing thing and allows us to accomplish amazing things. But you first have to start with how am I changing my business and what does that look like? And just delivering some tech doesn't solve that problem. All right. Well, those are some amazing tips. I really love the last one, especially it really hit home for me. I appreciate you really running through such an incredibly varied career in, in, and also like really bringing back like that. I, I really appreciate how you brought back that, that very kind of small business brick and mortar piece that, that was in the midst of your career and part of your passion and actually seeing how technology can help help evolve some of that and disrupt some of what's existing. I'm excited to hear about your new venture and what's going to happen with that. And we really appreciate having you here. Yes, I certainly appreciate the time. And and when we launch and get some traction, I'd love to come back and talk to you about that. That'd be amazing. All right. Thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Talk to you later. All right. 
As Jennifer points out, leadership is often about taking a step back and refocusing everyone on the actual goals of the business. It's especially important to recognize that this applies to yourself as much as anyone. How much you, as a leader, dive in to the challenges you're trying to solve will be directly relational to your ability to guide teams effectively through the murky waters that arise as you're trying to solve them. 